Thank you for the news update. Uh, as I was mentioning at the top of the hour, there's a lot of questions as to where it might be best to live if you're concerned about religious freedom protections. Uh, a nonprofit legal organization specializing in religious liberty cases has conducted a study comparing U.S. states on the basis of how free its residents are to practice their faith. As I mentioned, um, not to give a spoiler again, but Mississippi is uh, the place with the most protections for religious freedom, while New York comes in last on the First Liberty Institute's Religious Liberty in the State's 2022 Index. Now, there's a lot to unpack with any report like this, and I thought it would be a terrific idea to talk to Andrea petrodi Bear, uh, who is the director of the Conscience Project and the legal analyst for EWTN News. She is also director of strategy for the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can visit uh, her at conscienceproject.org and follow her on Twitter at at Bear Pichotti. I certainly do. Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthew, for having me on. I love to talk with you guys. Well, it's uh, always fun to talk to you because you, especially uh, as a lawyer, but also as a keen observer, I think, of where we are in culture, you've had your finger on the pulse for a long time about uh, the concerns that we should have about religious freedom, uh, about religious liberty. So before I get to this uh, report, which I actually think does connect to this question, what's your broad picture of where we are in the United States on the religious freedom front? You know, as a lawyer, Matthew, I think that we're in great shape. Um, We've got a lot of laws that we're going to talk about uh, when we look at this report in the states. We also have our Constitution, which protects free exercise and guards against the state getting in the middle of religion um, in the First Amendment. But I do think that we're seeing more and more division and more and more issues that kind of put people of faith faith on the defensive, and people of faith, especially Catholics, are going to have to stand their ground for what they believe, and our institutions are going to have to decide, hopefully, in favor of staying true to their mission and at the same time serving the public, regardless of their religious affiliations. Yeah. Now, we've had a number of pretty significant wins at the Supreme Court, so we've had one or two losses. but that's not always really historically reliable, that the court does change its disposition in a lot of ways, doesn't it? That's, that's true. And we do have moments, uh, dark, dark moments in, in Supreme Court history and recent history and precedent where the Supreme Court really didn't quite get the founders' intent of the Constitution's protection for religion. I'm very confident that this Supreme Court, especially with the present presence of originalists, does, and they're tapping into great scholarship um, that helps inform what, what were the founders dealing with, what were they thinking on, and a true understanding of religious freedom. Now, things can change, and we always hear, you know, elections have consequences, and the, the addition or even the threatened expansion of the Supreme Court is being batted around by a number of people in the Biden administration and their allies. So we had these uh, recent uh, court decisions, Obergefell, uh, which opened the door for uh, same-sex marriage. We had Bostock, which I think uh, you can address both of these, which sort of revolutionized the whole approach to the idea of gender and sex. I remember the discussions at the time, especially with Obergefell, uh, that there were major worries about what might follow from 
that decision uh, relating to religious liberty and the rights of uh, conscience. Has, have those concerns really panned out? Uh, should we be even more worried, given the very aggressive gender ideology that we seem being pushed you know, across Matthew, all I, of the country? I, I think we should. I think we should. I think we should primarily because the administration and we find governments in, in different states throughout the country are pushing very aggressively kind of an expanded understanding of civil rights to include sexual orientation and gender identity, and at the same time um, trying to trample on conscience-based objections to um, those kinds of recognitions, whether it's, you know, having, uh, in the case of, of Bostock, um, being forced to have someone represent your organization, religious organization, that doesn't model that in their behavior as far as their, their sexual orientation. Um, but we do have to recognize at the same time those key decisions that you mentioned, Obergefell and Bostock, in the majority opinion said, hey, wait a second, don't forget about religious freedom protections. And I think what we're going to be seeing in the next two, three, four, five years are these cases percolating up where we really are being forced as a country to say, can we find a way for a peaceful existence where civil rights aren't being pitted against one another and people of faith can stand their ground and, and live consistent with their religious beliefs? Yeah. So jumping from that then to this First Liberty Institute's uh, Religious Liberty in the States 2022, that they're, they're ranking all 50 states uh, according to how many laws are on the books that protect uh, the free exercise of religion. And of course, judging it by the states that have the most laws providing safeguards for religious freedom rank the highest. I guess one question, I've actually been asked this uh, once or twice over the, these last years especially. Why is it possible for a state to have such radically different laws on religious freedom and conscience protections from other states? Shouldn't everyone be protected under the same federal law in, in a country that certainly was built on the idea of freedom? You know, that's a great question. I mean, and part of it is the dynamic nature of our country, right? There are protections that we find in our Constitution, and then there are laws and protections that our state governments and even local governments have. This this report is just looking at state governments. But um, there is there's an important, I guess, affirmative presence that state governments, state constitutions and laws can have in securing the rights to religious freedom. And so we almost want to think that the Constitution's kind of like the floor, and we want to encourage states to be thinking about what's unique about their state government and the people in their government and, and in their, their, their localities and what particular protections they need to be able to guarantee their full and free exercise of, of religion. So I, I kind of I love our country, Matthew. You know that. <laughs> yes, and, I do. And I love and I love the fact that we can really see the interworking between the federal and the state governments, almost trying to compete with one another for how much protection we can give to what we consider our first freedom. Right. Now, among the uh, provisions that uh, the study looked at. Um, Mississippi scored 20 out of 20 on laws that allow things like healthcare workers to refuse to take part in procedures or services that go against their religious beliefs. New York at 
number 50, scored only five out of the 20 on health care exemptions. So in other words, uh, doctors in, in New York have no legal protections if they were to refuse to perform sterilizations or prescribe contraception, nor does the state protect them from criminal liability if they refuse to perform abortions. It's striking, isn't it, that there's such a middle ground between uh, the two of them, that the states are going to are, no pun intended, all over the map in terms of the different general conscience provisions. They really are, Matthew, and surprisingly, they're not predictable. You would think, and the of of the study, Professor Sarah Estelle over at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, my hometown, um, she said, you know, you, you see that there are red states and blue states that are coming out at different levels in the rankings. It's not that conservative uh, states with conservative majority are more protective of religion than the others. I think there's a lot going on in, in this study. And I was thinking earlier, two, two of the big uh, states that have very large Catholic populations, like you said, New York and Illinois, rank really differently. Illinois mm-hmm. comes in at number two, New York at number 50. They do allow for more protections for kind of the church as institution. So I think that this study really does give a sense to look at what do we, what kind of protections do we have as individuals, and what kind of protections do our churches receive in the different states, and really inspire lawmakers and voters and our churches to put pressure to get more laws on the books. Now, having said that, just because the law is on the books doesn't mean that you're safeguarded. It just means that you have a legal recourse. And we've seen that time and time again, where people need to turn to the laws to protect them because the government or circumstances aren't doing that naturally. Yeah. So to stay on the, the, the question about New York specifically, we've just had uh, a New York court ruling against Yeshiva University uh, that uh, is noted should really be the source of concern uh, for religious schools everywhere. What happened in this case? Yeah, Matthew, this is really, really interesting. Yeshiva is the nation's largest Orthodox Jewish university. It's based in Manhattan. Um, and it uh, has been in existence for, gosh, so many years and has, has really been the place for not only study of the Torah, but of a place where Orthodox Jewish students and, and non-Jewish students can go to continue to receive secular education as well. A student group had petitioned to um, Yeshiva University for official recognition of an LGBTQ student advocacy group. And that's not just that the university would recognize them, but all the bells and whistles that come with it. And the university, after consultation with their religious leaders, said, you know, the Torah has a nuanced understanding of sexual orientation. And so we're not going to give official recognition to this group. And they've denied recognition to other student groups that were at odds with their understanding of the Torah, like a video gaming group or a gun shooting group. Um, and, and that was kind of con- kind of showing their consistency. This wasn't, you know, a one-off. The students, though, went and they filed a lawsuit in New York State Court claiming that their university violated New York City's human rights law because it was discriminating against them based on sexual orientation, and they won. Uh, A state court judge earlier this summer ordered Yeshiva University 
to officially recognize the student group um, immediately and give them all the benefits that come with that recognition. And Yeshiva wasn't willing to budge. They didn't want to violate their mission. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but it was a really great, great Yes, exactly. Uh, well, don't go anywhere, uh, Andrea. We're going to continue this conversation with Andrea Pachodi bear You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen, filling in for Al today. Please, don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Matthew Bunsen, filling in for Al today, continuing my conversation with Andrea Pichotti bear who's the director of the Conscience Project and a legal analyst for EWTN News. She's also director of strategy for the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. You can visit her at uh, conscienceproject.org and also follow her on Twitter, at, at Bear Pichotti. I'm also honored to say that uh, Andrea is a very good friend of mine, so it's, it's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Uh, we're talking about uh, Yeshiva University. Now, if there was one university that might come as a, as a surprise to people that uh, they're facing these legal problems uh, with uh, sort of gender ideology and all of that, it would be Yeshiva University. And it, it would strike me that this is the nation's leading Orthodox Jewish university, and yet even they're having these problems now. No, Matthew, you're right. I mean, it, we're used to hearing of um, either Catholic-run organizations or evangelical individuals in these legal battles. But I think what we're seeing is the, the word orthodox means something across faith traditions. And it means that when you're asked to betray your belief, you're not going to. And Yeshiva is a perfect example of a university unwilling to bend to the pressures of sexual orientation and gender ideology advocacy. Now, this has uh, kind of made its way to the Supreme Court and all. Uh, where is this type of a, a case headed, and what are its prospects? So there was a little moment of interest where the Supreme Court was asked by the university to stay the state court order, ordering the, the yeshiva to officially recognize this LGBTQ student group. The Supreme Court said, wait, you know, we think that there are avenues for relief available in the state courts still, so we want you to exhaust those avenues first. And that's kind of a prudential move on the Supreme Court, but there were four Supreme Court justices led by Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett saying, look, we kind of know this is going to come back to us. So it's better that we address this issue now rather than put the university in a position where they're being forced and ordered to do something that's completely at odds with their mission. Yeah, now, Yeshiva itself uses uh, the very clear language uh, relating to the teachings uh, about the human person. And uh, one of the, the phrases that they used is that uh, it cannot lend its own name or seal of approval to clubs that appear inconsistent with its values. And I'm particularly interested in this case because of its possible ramifications down the road for many Catholic institutions, many Catholic hospitals, for example, and Catholic universities that are now under assault in their own way. But is there also something to be said that uh, some of the assaults now are coming from within? 
No, you're absolutely right. On the first point, Matthew, there is an issue where government is reaching in to the internal operations and basically the belief systems of these private religious institutions. And that's a real affront to what we call in the legal world church autonomy. So this is yeshiva's understanding of Orthodox Judaism, and it shouldn't be altered by a secular court in in New York State. The second issue that you raise is, is another issue, and that's one of coherency. The students at Yeshiva that wanted this group, they said, without any kind of hesitation, what we want to do is we want to change the way that uh, Judaism is, is understanding issues of sexual orientation. If, if you want to do that, that's going to the courts is really not, not the way to go. Um, we know that these are timeless truths. And we really need, as people of faith, to accept them as difficult and, and hard they may seem and as, as difficult they appear to our more secular um, world around us. And at the same time, respond with genuine care, concern, especially love for people that are facing same-sex attraction and feeling insecure in the world that they're living in. Well, that's right. Yeah, which the the church is very clear. The catechism is very clear, despite the fact that uh, there are quite a few people, especially quite a few in Germany, who <laughs> want to see a pretty significant change to that. Um, I want to, though, go to a, a review that you just did, uh, and that is on a new book uh, by Helen Alvarez. And no conversation with you would be complete today without talking about that book review. Well, this is this was an honor. Uh, to be able to review Helen Alvarez's Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution. It's a book that's just out, and Helen is, uh, as many people know, just really an amazing legal scholar, an incredible devoted Catholic woman, and, and sharp as a tack. Her book really is a guide for Catholic institutions and Catholics to not only defend our religious freedom in courts, but when we're dealing with it, especially in the context of kind of the sexual interests, you know, the um, uh, related to same-sex attraction or gender identity, abortion, contraception, to use the opportunity to evangelize and explain why we believe in Catholic teaching on the human person and why we believe it reflects God's love for us and the love that we're called to show one another. So I'd highly recommend to people to pick up a copy of Helen Alvarez's book, Religious Freedom After the Sexual Revolution, whether you're in ministry or supporting your parish or just a faithful Catholic. It really does help crystallize some of these important issues that are percolating up in society and in our courts today. Yeah, and you also, you're, you're extremely busy, so let's just put that out there. Uh, you also wrote a, a, a brilliant piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think or a couple of days ago, on the counterfeit Catholicism left and right. And you make the point that the faithful need a framework that rejects secularism and sectarianism alike. But it's a fair question, you know, because how should American Catholics think about their faith and public life? I mean, this is one of the great questions that we're facing now. And you focus especially on abortion, where, as you write, two of the nation's most prominent Catholic politicians, President Joe Biden and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, have unequivocally abandoned the church's teachings on the dignity of human life from conception onward. How are we supposed to build on that type of a foundation? 
Well, I think what we need to do is kind of look back on the strengths that we have in our church teaching and in our founding principles as a nation. This country is exceptional, and we offer robust religious freedom, um, and the church has been thriving. So we, we shouldn't shy away from our Catholic identity as Americans, and especially we shouldn't abandon um, these kind of truths that aren't truth because the church teaches them. They're true because they're true. They're truth on their own accord. Um, and we also have to realize we're facing a tough time. We don't need to burn it all down, as some people are suggesting. We really need to go back to first principles, strengthen the family, be concerned for the immigrant and the displaced, and really insist on the dignity of every person made in the image of God. These principles are core to our faith. They're uh, resounding in our Constitution, and if we are steadfast in safeguarding them, we're going to be able to find our way out of these very difficult times that we're living in. Yeah, and this question that we keep coming back to, and, and you use the great phrase of counterfeit Catholicism, we seem to have lost an ability to even talk to each other. How do we overcome that? I mean, as a country, uh, but also as Catholics. I mean, one of the things that I'll be talking later in this show uh, about the, the synthesis on the Synod uh, that's coming up. And one thing that was often repeated by Catholics in these listening sessions uh, of varying value, nevertheless, is the fact that American Catholics seem very polarized and feel very polarized. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and one of the reasons why I've joined up with the Institute for Human Ecology at Catholic University is that we're trying to reclaim the conversation. Um, I would really encourage your listeners, check out our website. It's ihe.catholic.edu. You'll see where we're bringing together incredible Catholic academics, um, moral theologians, philosophers, experts in politics, um, and, and matching them with media experts, basically to be able to do this outward conversation um, in the public square here in the United States, where the Catholic intellectual tradition can make that contribution. We've got, a, you know, a deep bench when it comes to deep thinkers in the church uh, that can help us address many of these challenging conversations, but we also have a tone. And the Catholic tone isn't a divisive one. It isn't, you know, mudslinging. It's one where we genuinely care for the good of the other person, especially the person that, that disagrees with us. And we are profoundly um, in love with our country, our neighbor, and, and want to share that love and concern that we have for their well-being. So again, it's, it's ihe.catholic.edu, and we put together a, a select group of scholars and fellows to really engage by writing media pieces, commentaries, appearing in television, uh, like your show, um, to be able to share this, this message that is new, but it's also tapping into our tradition. Yeah, is there an, an energy that you're seeing in a lot of these discussions now? You know, we talk about integralism, we talk about uh, natcons. I mean, there are a lot of different names and things being tossed out there. But as, as somebody once said, we're called to be Catholic, we're called to be Christian. 
but there seems to be a certain intellectual energy that we're seeing now in some corners um, in trying to bring people together in a way that we haven't for a long time. I, I think you're right, Matthew. And this energy, I'm really looking forward to it. Next week on Thursday, October 6th, the Catholic University is going to be hosting a a great lecture by an amazing fellow whose focus and specialty is on the common good, Professor Russell Hittinger. And he's going to talk on, and wait for it, this title is amazing, How to Inherit a Kingdom, Reflections on the Situation of Catholic Political Thought. You can watch the lecture live stream. I think one of the really great parts of modernity is that all people can access this kind of information. Technology is offering amazing things, and we're all called to engage in the political conversation, in political thought. And and Russ Hittinger is, is really going to guide through and bring that energy that you said, you know, directed it towards a good place um, to be able to help us to be, as Leo the Thirteenth said, um, to give the Republic her best citizens. Yes, absolutely. Well, always a joy to talk with you, uh, Andrea Pachotti Bear. Thank you so much, Matthew. Take care. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about Nicaragua. It's a topic that we need to stay focused on because of what's happening there. It's a threat to all of us who believe in religious freedom. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Don't go anywhere.